we're going to look at a passage today that lends itself to, I think, when we take it out of context and don't understand what's going on in the larger picture, lends itself to, I think, some bad biblical interpretation and some bad theology. And so I want to lay some historical foundation so that we can understand what's happening in this story. So turn with me all the way back to 1 Kings 12. Because this story starts all the way back in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 12, 1 and 2 Kings is all about, the, the, it's a story about the kings of Israel, and up until this point, Israel is a united kingdom. It's one kingdom, 12 tribes, one kingdom, one nation. We see it's come under the rule of Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then in verse 12, we see Rehoboam, who is, is uh, Solomon's son, gets the throne. And Rehoboam is a foolish king, and you can read about his foolishness in the first part of 1 Kings 12. But what I want to tell you is this is the point where Israel becomes divided. Where at this point in history, Israel is divided into two kingdoms. Let's read this briefly. 1 Kings 12, verse 16. This is speaking about Rehoboam's foolishness. It says, when all Israel saw that the king, that's Rehoboam, did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. So at this point, Israel is divided into two nations. It becomes the northern kingdom, which is 11 tribes, and the southern kingdom, which is the tribe of Judah. And what we find is at this point, these two nations that was meant to be one people of God um, become enemies. And all throughout 1st and 2nd Kings and the rest of history and the history that Jesus enters into, these two kingdoms are at war with each other. They're bickering and fighting back and forth. Now, the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah, which is the line that Jesus comes from, is Jerusalem. The capital city of the northern kingdom is Samaria. So that's where the Samaritans come from. They're half-breeds. They intermarry with the Assyrians. They take on the pagan practices and the pagan gods and intermarry with the Assyrians. They become enemies with the southern kingdom. So that's where Samaria comes from. Turn with me to Ezekiel 37. So we've got these two kingdoms that are warring against each other. Two kingdoms that were meant to be one people of God, his chosen people, that were meant to be a blessing to all the nations. But we see they're, they're divided and they're split and they're warring against each other. But then we come across this prophecy in Ezekiel 37. The beginning of Ezekiel 37 is a well-known passage, the Valley of Dry Bones. Many of you have heard of this. This is what is right after Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. I'm going to read from Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 15. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it, for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and the house of Israel associated with him. He's talking about the two kingdoms here. Join them one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. Jump with me to verse 22. Ezekiel does this. Ezekiel 20, er, 37, 22, 
says, I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all. They shall, they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. So there's this prophecy that comes to Ezekiel that these two nations that were meant to be one chosen race will again one day become one nation. And this is the culture in which Jesus comes into. That they're expecting, this is a, a messianic prophecy, they're expecting a Messiah to come and he'll reunite the two nations into one and there'll be again one nation united and under one king. So this is what people are expecting in Jesus' day. This is what we see in um, John 4. Jesus comes, against, uh, comes up to a Samaritan woman at a well. And he interacts with this woman. And it's, and it's unheard of that a, a Jewish man would interact with a Samaritan woman. It's unheard of. And yet Jesus interacts with this woman. And then they, they have this dialogue. And she says, sir, I see that you're a prophet. You say that you worship in Jerusalem. Our fathers worship on this mountain. Jesus replies, says the day is coming when you will worship neither here nor there, but you'll worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus even talks about the fulfillment of this prophecy, that he will be the one to fulfill this, uni this uniting of these two kingdoms. So this is what we jump into in Acts 8. Turn with me back to Acts 8. Remember Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. At this point, Jews and Samaritans are still enemies. And here's what we jump into. Acts 8 and verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is right after Stephen was persecuted. People are scattered all over. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many, were many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of, of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man has the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time, for he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, for they had only been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then he laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part 
nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me, that, pray for me to the Lord that none of what you have said may come upon me. When they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to the many villages of the Samaritans. So the gospel comes to Samaria. Samaria. Here's what I want to do. I want to take five minutes, and I want you guys to do some work. Because I could tell you, and I will tell you, what I believe the Bible is telling us here. But I think if you discover a few things on your own, it's going to stick with you longer than if I just stand up here and tell you what this says. And so what I want you to do is you can do it on your own or get with a few people around you. And I want you to get into this scripture and ask a couple of questions. There's a couple of questions that I want to highlight so that you can begin to uncover what's happening here. Number one, who are the main characters in this story? We've got these up on the screen here. Who are, they, who are they and what do we know about them? There's a couple of verses here that you can reference that will help you. Um, when we go into the small groups, let's return to this slide so they can look at those verses. But I want to look at who are the main characters and what do we know about them. Secondly, this, this, this verse that I reference, Acts 1.8, the main points, where do we see that playing out in this story? Ezekiel 37, how is that being played out in this story? And then finally, what's the main point? What is this passage? Why is this in the Bible? What's it telling us? What do you think is the main point of this story? So I want you guys to spend five minutes and just discover some of this on your own. And then we'll come back um, and I'll tell you what I think. And you can do what you want with it. So take five minutes. Again, you can do it with a couple of people around you. You can do it on your own. Either way, get to know a bit of this yourself. I'll gather you back in four or five minutes. Anyone never read this passage before and be like, what is going on here? Anybody read this passage and say, I have no idea what's going on here, and so I'm not going to try and figure it out. I've done that for many years. Um, Okay, I want to just jump to the last question. Would somebody be brave to boldly say, what do you think this story is all about? Why is this story in here? What's God trying to tell us through this? Anyone want to be brave? There's no right or wrong answer. Maybe there is. I don't know. Maybe you'll be wrong. Maybe you'll be right. Maybe you see something I don't see. Anyone? What's that? The power of God. You want to preach? You could. (laughs) God breaking down that wall. 
Yes. I think both of those. Those are like both of my points right there. I think you guys saw my notes. That's awesome. Were these posted? I don't think I posted these. That's awesome. Uh, again, I think this is a story that when we take especially 14 through 17 out of context and build a theology just on that piece about the Holy Spirit, we miss what's going on in the larger story here. We miss what's God, what God is trying to tell us here. See, I don't think this is a story so much a prescriptive story about how the Holy Spirit always comes on somebody as much as it is about a story of God's faithfulness to redeem and restore all men to himself. And yet we like to make it about these, these couple of verses here and miss the larger context of what's going on. See, I don't think that we can take verse 14 through 17 out of context and not see it in the context of what's happening here in Samaria and what happened in Acts 1.8 and Ezekiel 37. I don't think you can take it out of the context of what's happening with Simon here. I don't think we can take, and that's what, when, you, when you do that, when you take a few verses, and we do that with any passage, you take a couple of verses out of context and build a whole theology on those couple of verses without understanding what's happening around it, I think you come up with some really dangerous theology. So again, I don't think this is so much a prescription about how the Holy Spirit always comes upon somebody as much as it is a description of God's faithfulness to reconcile all men to himself. Or, to put it simpler, I don't think this is so much about us and our experience as it is about God and his faithfulness. I think that's what this story is all about. Now with that said, what do we do with verse 14 through 17? Where they had faith, I think we can argue that they were genuine believers, yet the Holy Spirit hadn't yet come upon them. There's a similar story in Acts, I think, 16 or 19. What do we do with this? Does that mean that we receive the Holy Spirit separate from faith in Jesus? And I would argue that any theology that separates the working, the receiving of the Holy Spirit apart from faith in Jesus is a bad theology and a dangerous theology. See, I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think it's telling us that there's a separate experience with the Holy Spirit aside from faith in Jesus. That there, there's a point where you believe in Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus, you accept him as the Lord of your life, and then at some other point you receive the Holy Spirit. But I think rather, by biblical teaching, the moment that you believe in Jesus, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I want to back that up with Scripture because I think there's some really bad theology on this out there. And I want to back that up with Scripture. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 says this. It says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Acts 16, 30 and 31, this is Paul talking to the Philippian jailer. It says, when he brought them out, and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. So these scriptures and many others tell us it's by faith alone. It's grace through faith that we are saved. Romans 8, 9 says, you, however, are not, if you are not in the flesh, you, however, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, 
if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And 2 Corinthians 1, 21, 21 and 22 says this, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ, has anointed us, and has also put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And that one from 1 Corinthians seals the deal for me. That there isn't a spirit-filled believer and an unspirit-filled believer. This tells me that you have the Holy Spirit as a sign of your salvation. And if you don't, you'll stand before Jesus and you will not be welcomed into eternal glory. See, I don't think this is so much about our experience that we have with the Holy Spirit, but rather the sign and the seal of our salvation that only comes through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what about those of us that have had genuine encounters with the Holy Spirit? Where maybe the Holy Spirit manifested in power, in tongues, in miracles, in signs and wonders. You saw people healed. What about those experiences? Were those real? I was preaching several weeks ago here and I had a young man come up to me and ask about an encounter that he had. I referenced this passage and I had a young man come up and ask because he had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. A powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit where he was told that that's when he received the Holy Spirit. He said, I believed in Jesus before that, and that's when I was told I received the Holy Spirit. And what, as I was asking him, what I think he was asking was, was that encounter genuine? Was that a genuine encounter with the Holy Spirit? And as we talked, I said, I, I believe it was, I hope it was, and I hope you have many more just like it. I hope you have many more just like it. But what about those of us who haven't had those miraculous encounters with the Holy Spirit? Where we haven't experienced what happens here in Acts 8. We haven't experienced speaking in tongues. We haven't experienced miracles. We haven't experienced prophetic words. What do we do, in the, what do, we do with that? I think we bless God and we worship God for the seal of our salvation in our life. Because I do believe in the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. I do believe that the Holy Spirit manifests himself in power today in our midst, in miraculous ways. I've seen people healed. I've heard prophetic words. I believe in it. But here's what I believe is that the Holy Spirit will do that when he chooses for his glory, for his purposes, and to advance his kingdom, not for our entertainment and not for our own experience. He will do it for his glory and for his kingdom so that his name would be exalted. See, I think that this 14 through 17 is sandwiched in the middle of the story of Simon the sorcerer simply so that God can tell us, he, I think it's a warning sign, where God's saying, don't fall into the trap that Simon the sorcerer fell into. And I fear that we are falling into that trap here in America where we've fallen into what I call experiential Christianity. Where it's all about the experience. And we try to create these experiences. And we think that following Jesus is a series of experiences that make us feel good. There was a revival down in Florida several years ago. And people from all over the world, thousands, tens of thousands of people from all over the world flocked to this revival that was going down in Florida. 
and I heard it with my own ears, people that I knew and loved, I heard this kind of language. We're going down to Florida to get the anointing to bring it back to Grand Rapids. And I thought, oh, my friend, you're falling into the, the error of Simon here where you're all about the experience, where we love our experiences, we love our mountaintops. And what, what Jesus is saying here is it's not all about the experience. It's about all men being reconciled back to myself. And yet we've bought into this experiential Christianity where we love our experiences. Maybe we don't fall into the same trap that I know people did with this revival down in Florida, but I see people doing it in the evangelical church. We'll go to a conference and have this great experience. We call them worship experiences. Have this great encounter with Jesus genuine encounters with Jesus and our emotions will get all stirred up and our spirits will get all stirred up and we'll come back and we'll try to recreate that experience maybe we don't do it the way that I've seen it but maybe we'll come back and we got to change up our music or we got to change up our style we got to change up our lighting or we got to change up our preaching or we got to change our setting or whatever it is to try to recreate these experiences or maybe individually, we read these kind of passages and we say, man, I want that kind of power. And so we, we try to fast more so we can get this power. Or we try to pay with our efforts and our energies. If I just read my Bible more in a day, then I can get that power too. And maybe we don't try to buy it with gold like Simon, but we try to buy it with our, with our efforts, with our fasting, with our holiness, with our righteousness. We still try to buy the power that is a free gift from God. See, following Jesus isn't all about the experience. Right after this, Paul comes onto the scene. And we see that his experience was lots of pain and suffering. See, following Jesus isn't all about going from experience to experience. It's about a lifelong journey of obedience. That's what it means to follow Jesus. I love the experiences. I love when my emotions get stirred up. I love when I'm excited. I love those times. And I get to enjoy them once in a while. But I also know that you can't live on a mountaintop. And at some point, you need to come down and come into real life. And that's what it means to follow Jesus, is the daily journey. It's not all about the experience. It's the daily journey. But now there's a flip side to that coin, where we've bought into this experiential Christianity, but there's a flip side to that coin, because there's a thing that I see happening here, and I've seen it all the way through Acts, and I see it all the way through the Bible. Notice with me at verse 4, they're preaching the word. Notice in verse 25, they're preaching the gospel. So at the beginning and the end of this story, we have the preaching of the gospel. But then in the middle, we have power that happens when that word is preached. Look with me at verse 6. Is that they were pay paying attention to what Philip said because they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. They saw something. They witnessed something. What Simon saw in verse 14 through 17 was not inferential. He didn't infer, as John Piper talks about, he, said, he, he, did, he didn't infer that there was something happening. He witnessed something. 
There was a real tangible manifestation of power that happened when the word of God was preached. And we've seen that over and over, is that when the word of God is preached, there's always power that accompanies it. And it's not a theoretical power. It's not a power that they just read about or they just know about because the Bible tells us it's there. It's a power that they tangibly experience. It's a power that they felt, that they saw. Something happened that Simon saw that he wanted to buy. I don't know what it was. We can't take away from this that they spoke in tongues because the Bible doesn't tell us. In this event, in verse 14 through 17, the Bible doesn't tell us that anybody got healed, but in context, something did happen that they witnessed, that they saw, that they, there was a tangible manifestation of power when the Word of God was preached. And I'll tell you, as I've been preparing for this message, that has been messing with me. For weeks, that has been messing with me. And I just want to get really personal because I, right now, I get to preach a lot. This weekend, I'll preach four times. Next weekend, I'll be preaching over the East Campus. I was just out in Africa preaching. I get to preach at least once a week nowadays. And I look at this, and I see that when people preach the Word of God, that there is tangible power that goes along with it. And I look at my life, and I have to ask myself, when I preach is there tangible power that's going along with it? And I have to say no. I have to say no, there's not. What I see in my life doesn't match up with what I'm reading in this word. And that has been messing with me all week. I've been praying and talking with my wife about this, saying that my life doesn't match up with this. I don't know what to say today because my life doesn't match up with this. I have a passion right now to accurately interpret the Word of God. It's a passion of mine right now. I want to see a generation that knows what the Word of God says that can accurately interpret it. But I have to ask myself, is that all I have to offer? Is that all I have to offer today is an accurate interpretation of the Word of God? Is that all I've got? And it messes with me because we live in a neighborhood where there are literally demon-possessed people around us. I'm not talking about theoretically demon-possessed people. I'm not talking about esoterically, like we've heard. We see demon-possessed people. We know they're into witchcraft. They tell us about these demonic experiences they have. We witness it. We've got guys that black out because they're We've got real demon-possessed people. And they're not being set free. And I have to ask myself, why not? Because what I see in this word is that when the gospel is preached, people are set free. And I'm not seeing it in my life. I want to ask about this church. What do we expect in this church? When you come here on a Sunday or a Saturday or a Sunday, what do you expect to find when you come here? You expect to find good teaching. Rod's a great teacher. One of the best that I've heard. You find great music. You find great uh, musicians, talented musicians, talented worshipers who genuinely worship when they're leading you here. We have great experiences. I want to ask, do we expect that there's power that happens when the Word of God is preached? See, I've got a good theology on suffering. I can preach Philippians 3 all day long. 
I can tell you all about suffering. I can tell you all about suffering in my life. When a blind person comes to me, I can, I can explain all day long why they're, why, they're, why they're blind and the theological stance on suffering and this is producing in you character and hope and hope dis- doesn't disappoint. I can preach those all day long. But I wonder if I was with Peter and John going into that gate and that lame man asked for me for money, what could I have given him? Could I have said, sorry, dude, I don't, I, don't, I don't give people money? Or could I get, have given them the change in my pocket? Or could I have been with Peter and John and say, money and gold I don't have, but here's what I'll give you in the name of Jesus, walk. Will people find that here at Crossroads? Do people know that this is a place where the blind are receiving sight, where the dead are being raised, or do we explain it away with biblical interpretation? That that kind of thing doesn't actually happen, and today we just suffer. Because what I see and hear is that when the Word of God is preached, power happens. Something happens. Is anything happening when we preach the Word of God these days? Is anything happening? And I have to say, in my own life, largely, no, it's not. Largely, no. I am surrounded with sick, broken people. And what do I have to offer them? I can exegete a passage, but do I have the power to heal them? I want to ask in your own life, has the word of God been powerful in your life? Have you seen the power of the word of God? Can you say, I know Jesus is alive and here's why I know it? Because the Bible tells me so. I'm going to tell you that's not enough. Or can you say, I know Jesus is alive because here's what he's done in my life. Because I can tell you what he's done in my life. Here's the power that's happened in my life. And I'll tell you, I I don't see what I think is the fullness of the power of God in my life. But what I can tell you is my life once was a wreck. That I was out partying and smoking and drinking and girls and had no purpose in my life. And because of the truth and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by no bearing of my own, he saved me. I can look in my life and say, I know Jesus is alive. Here's why, because here's what he's done in my life. Can you say that this morning? Or is all you have to offer, I know he's alive because the Bible tells me so. See, I fear that this word, the word that's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit, able to discern the hearts and the intentions of man, the very word of God, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus that's meant to set us free, we're using as a veil for our shame and our wickedness. People coming into church on Sunday mornings, their life is a wreck, caught in all manner of wickedness, putting a happy face on, wearing this thing as a veil so that everybody likes them. I want to ask you, are you more concerned about your reputation than you are about the power of the gospel setting you free? How many people will come in this weekend and hear me preach marriage in shambles, caught in adulterous relationships, men caught in pornography, 
addictions, drugs, food addictions. And we're more concerned about our reputation and what our small group thinks about us than we are about by being set free by the power of the gospel. Because there is power in this. It isn't just a historical story. It's the living and active word of God. Meant to reconcile all men to himself and set us free. Is the gospel setting you free tonight? Can you truly say it's setting you free tonight? I got a lot to work on in my life. I'm not perfect, so please don't hear me on that. If there's a struggle in your life, I'm not saying that you're not saved. I got a lot of struggles in my life. The Lord's working on a lot of areas. But what I can tell you is he's bringing me from one degree of glory to the next. That he is continually setting me free. And that's how I know that Jesus is alive. That's how I know that this is more than a story. Because of what God has done in my life. Is the gospel setting you free tonight? Is the truth of Jesus setting you free? And I just fear that there's people even listening here that you're hearing without hearing. You're here to get a good message. You're caught in all kinds of wickedness. You've got all kinds of people fooled. And you'll be fooling them all the way to hell. And you'll stand before Jesus and say, Jesus, everyone thinks I'm going to heaven. And he'll say, away from me, you you worker of wickedness. I never knew you. See, this is not meant to be a veil to make us look good. But it's the very power of God to set us free. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I just want to agree with your word. Revelation 22 says the Spirit and the bride say, come. So I say, Holy Spirit, would you come to this place? I know that you're already here. I know that you already dwell inside of me. I know that there's nothing I can do that I can get more of your Spirit. God, if you're, I just want to see that manifest power of your Holy Spirit in this place. For those in this room that have been caught in these works of religion their whole life, thinking they can earn their own righteousness, that they'll be set free in the power of your gospel, the power of your Holy Spirit. God, that the dead would be raised here tonight. That dead souls would be raised here tonight. That blind eyes would be opened. Eyes that have been seeing without seeing for so long and come here week after week hearing the truth of the gospel but they never have experienced the power of your Holy Spirit Father I pray that your Holy Spirit set us free tonight set us free God for your purposes, for your glory for your honor that the nations might know that you are alive Holy Spirit come to this